How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 204 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit. Let's talk for a minute here. Um, you know, we're, we're recently back, uh, after a little bit of a break here because of, uh, the DCBS order taking its sweet time to get here. So we were doing the essential stuff for a little while, and, uh, usually while I'm doing that, I'm kind of chomping at the bit to get back into the current year stuff here. Very excited to see what, uh, the next month's worth of books will, uh, Will give to us, and uh, well, uh, this time out, uh, the first three books that we're covering are well, they're not great. Um, last episode we did the Man Thing episode, which was ugh. This time we're doing Children of the Atom, which is more eh. And then next time, um, I've already written the script for this one. We're doing X Corp. And uh, I would like to apologize in advance for that, and also apologize in retrospect to books like Fallen Angels and uh, the Empire uh, Cash-In miniseries, because we haven't seen anything yet. Uh, X-Corp will be something else. Um, <laughs> it's these days where it's a, it's a little more difficult to become motivated to do these uh, these episodes here, so... We're going to make the best of it. Thankfully, this is Children of the Atom, and it's more of a meh than a uh. So uh, let's get right into it. This is Children of the Atom number three, had a July 2021 cover date. Stories called Unusual Dinner Guests, written by Vida Ayala, art by Paco Medina, colors David Curiel, letters VCs Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Robinson, Andros, Andrews Belastaros, White, and Sobolski. Cover price four bucks went on sale May 12, 2021. Now this time out, it looks like Carmen is going to be the voice in our heads here. Uh, we've seen over the past, well, I mean, the first two issues, I guess, uh, we've had a different narrator for each one out of our five team members here. Now here, we see her think about how all she's ever wanted out of life is to feel special, which, you know, makes her very, very unique, doesn't it? You know, I, 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 I gotta say, I've always wanted to be, like, wildly mediocre and host an X-Men podcast that nobody cared about, so mission accomplished for me. Now, she's getting ready to start live-streaming her cosplay knitting web show or whatever, and her mother is a bit worried that she's skipping breakfast to do so, but her dad is proud of her work ethic. So, Carmen gathers all her gear while thinking about how she's nobody's favorite. Now, she's worried that the uh, Kota kids will only keep her around because she makes them costumes. Now, while she's waxing on about how nobody likes her, she receives a couple of text messages, which basically disprove the point. Now, one is from Cole, that uh, basketballer we met the other uh, issue, where 
who is definitely not a mutant, right? He is certainly has no powers or anything, right? Now, he invites her to dinner and says that she could even bring her weirdo mutant-obsessed friends with her if she'd like. Now, speaking of weirdo mutant-obsessed friends, the other text is from Buddy, who is anxiously awaiting Carmencita's live stream. And we get the impression here that Carmen might just have the hot pants for Buddy. Anyway, from here, Carmen hits the record button and falls right into her peppy online persona. And her name here is Faintly Frosted Stitches. Now, I'm not sure if that's just a cute name, or if there's a pun or a reference in there that I'm just missing because I know very, very little about popular culture. Double page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters are Cherub, Marvel Guy, Cyclops Last, Gimmick, and Daycrawler, so... I guess that means we're already done with Nighty Nightcrawler, which is a good thing. Next up, an info page, and it's an auction website where people can bid on X-Men paraphernalia. Now, this one is for six shards from Magneto's helmet, circa a pre-Krakoa attack on New York City. I think he's attacked New York City a few times, so I couldn't say exactly if this is referring to something specific. Now, these images here are Kirby. Uh, I think they're from X-Men number one. Uh, The horns on his helmet sure look like X-Men number one, uh, which we have discussed over on the Essential X-Lapsed, and uh, that is kind of our sister show to Original Recipe X-Lapsed, what we cover while uh, we wait for books to arrive. So if you want to hear some Silver Age uh, musings, check out Essential X-Lapsed. It's available in the archives. Now, whatever the case, this is here to show us that Carmen, as Faintly Frosted Stitches, bought those shards for 500 bucks plus 20 bucks shipping and handling. So, uh, you know, where does she get these wonderful toys? Uh, mutant eBay, I guess. Back to comics, and we're in the then. Now, this is a flashback land that we didn't even know or possibly care existed. And it's our Kota kids in space. Like, for real, the Kotas are on board a spaceship, and they're freaking the F out. Well, Buddy and Carmen seem to be handling it okay. It's just the dudes who are losing their minds. Because, well, they're dudes, I guess? I don't know. The ship then blows an engine or something, and so our kids are probably going to die. This is a flashback, of course. Uh, Buddy gets caught in an explosion, which unfortunately doesn't seem to have given her any superpowers, just KO'd her for a little bit. Carmen rushes to her side because, A, she's got the hot pants for her, and B... Guys are useless, you see. I cannot stress that enough. Men are completely useless. It says so right here. Back to the present. Gabe and Buddy have arrived at Carmen's house, and it's here that we meet the twins. I think during the first issue, there was a bit of particularly clunky dialogue where Carmen mentioned the twins while she was also talking about J.J. and Benny. So I took that to mean that J.J. and Benny were twins. So, uh, my bad, I guess. Also, clunky dialogue and lack of context's bad as well. Uh, Carmen's mother refers to Gabe and Buddy as her other kids, which tells us that they must hang out there a lot. Info page. It's a social media post from Carmen regarding faintly frosted stitches, and it's, uh, it's about cosplay, and it's dull. Uh, she says there's nothing wrong with replicating elements of a costume if that's what you want to do. She also says, quote, drip worthy of a queen, unquote, which I think is what one might say while producing a urine sample. Back to comics, and Carmen is wrapping up some edits on a video. Huh, imagine editing a video. I don't have many videos out there, but I assure you they're all one takes, <laughs> because I haven't the foggiest idea how to even begin editing video. On that note, I did just uh, live stream my opening of my DCBS order for the uh, May books over on the Facebook group, which 
is, uh, I'm sure, is wildly entertaining to see some idiot holding a box. So if you want to see an idiot holding a box, that's where you go to. Anyway, Gabe and Buddy are there, and it's uh, pretty clear that Carmen does, in fact, have the hot pants for Buddy. They talk a bit about Cole, and Buddy suggests that he might be a mutant. And instead of just rolling their eyes and saying, again with this mutant crap, the other two kind of just earnestly ponder it. Buddy suggests that they maybe ought to try using Cole to solve their Krakoan gateway quandary. Carmen thinks this is a uh, kind of a scummy thing to do. You know, using someone who she considers to be a good friend, and, uh, well, she's not wrong. Carmen decides that she's not even going to attend this dinner. She says that she doesn't feel good. And, uh, I mean, that might sound like an excuse, but we will soon find out that it's not, because we're going to see just how not good she feels in just a little bit. Now, the rest of the Coda Goofs will go to this dinner. Worth noting, Buddy cannot seem to keep her hands to herself here. She is constantly rubbing up and hugging on Carmen, which, you know, might be, uh, you know, mixed messages a little bit. Uh, Let's jump back into flashback land. Uh, The ship, the spaceship, is about to explode. The Coda kids are strapped into escape pods, which is mighty convenient. Carmen attempts to declare her love for Buddy, but the racket of the exploding ship is far too loud to shout over, and the pods crash down in the Adirondacks. Back to the present, we're at Cole's apartment. Now, Cole's fathers are joined by this dude with huge hands. Like, he almost looks like Apocalypse in a skin suit. Very bizarre. He's introduced as Arthur Nagin, who we learn via a quick cross-referencing of the Marvel Wiki is actually Gorilla Man which is a ton more boring than Apocalypse in a skin suit. Now, it's worth noting, I guess Gorilla Man isn't part of any wiki that Buddy is writing or cross-referencing or even looking at because nobody here recognizes him. And I mean, dude is friggin' massive, so a red flag or two wouldn't be unwarranted. I mean, he, I don't know how this dude fits through doors. Meanwhile, back at Carmen's, she's struck with a strange and sudden pain. Hmm. Now, we'll be checking back with her throughout this dinner party. Back at Cole's, Nagin is revealed as being part of a project called Real Unity, which sounds like any number of projects that we've read over the past 60 years of X-Men stories where humans attempt to splice themselves or inject themselves with mutant powers. Back at Carmen's, she rushes toward the bathroom. Hmm. Back to Cole's, it's revealed that while Cole was deathly ill, his dad's turned to Real Unity for help. Now, Nagin spouts a ton of apocalypse things about Darwin and survival of the fittest. One of Cole's dads says that this is only due to Nagin and his research that Cole was saved. Back to Carmen's, where she is throwing up into a sink? Come on, kid, there's a toilet right there. Don't puke in the sink. That's disgusting. She then collapses. Let's go back to Cole's. We learn more about real unity. Cole was implanted with some mutant tissue, which aided in his healing process. And so he's kind of half-mutant, half-human right now. I don't know if we would consider this post-human. I don't know. But he makes things awkward by suggesting out loud that Cole ought to help them test the Krakoan gateways. Cole then realizes that these goofballs are only there to use him. He becomes wildly offended and kicks them all the F out. And I gotta say, good man, you know, he lasted longer with these idiots than I would've. Now we wrap up at the conclusion of the spaceship flashback... The Coda Kids survived. I mean, imagine that. A flashback featuring characters we're following in the present, ending with none of those characters dying. Hmm. Oh, and also, uh, Carmen might be a mutant? Or she's part of the Vampire Nation? Uh, 
I don't know, the art here really doesn't give us much. Uh, there's definitely some sort of bestial transformation going on in her. Maybe she's got a brood baby inside her? I really couldn't tell you. It's, uh, it's nebulous, and I suppose it, it ought to be for a cliffhanger. Anyway, that's where we leave it. Next episode, X-Corp, and I am sorry. But that is, thankfully, a discussion for another day. Let's now talk about, well, what little there is to talk about uh, regarding this issue of Children of the Atom. And, I mean, I I hate to sound like a broken record, despite the fact that I consistently do so, but uh, we're three issues in, right? Uh, The first two issues were basically the same story told twice. Here we're getting a little bit of progression here, intermixed with this weird out-of-nowhere flashback. I really, I just don't know. Uh, This really isn't doing a whole lot for me here, and it really speaks to the ridiculous levels of bloat that are are now infecting the X-Men line of books here. Don't know why this is necessary. Um, Don't know why it uh, requires quite this many pages to be told. I don't know, we're doing this slow burn here in a time where I don't know that we can afford to do so. I'm not sure if this is supposed to be like a done-in-five or a done-in-six. I sort of hope it's a miniseries, but we haven't been told uh, either way. This might just be a Marvel thing where everything's a miniseries, or everything's an ongoing until they decide it's not. So, um, I don't know, I guess we'll have to see. Now, the out-of-nowhere flashback scene to the spaceship. Uh, We don't know how the kids found a spaceship, got on board a spaceship. I suppose maybe it really doesn't matter. It's just all we need to know is that they did. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, these X-Books are really into the space crap, unfortunately, so um, I guess that fits the uh, the tone and tenor of the line. But uh, I'm trying to figure out what the point of it is here, other than to show us that uh, that Buddy and Carmen are cool under pressure and the guys are blithering idiots, because we got to be reminded of that, of course. I don't know if maybe the trauma has caused a triggering of Carmen's uh, mutant abilities or inhuman abilities or whatever the hell ability she has, or if maybe she was infected with with Brood. Who knows? The last image we see of Carmen looks very much like uh, one of those where someone has been infected with a Brood, you know, like kind of gets like a a bit of a snout, uh, teeth get pointy. It, It looked very broody. It was the first thing that popped to mind for me here. Well, the second thing. At first, I was like, oh, maybe she's a vampire, because it looked a lot like uh, the Vampire Nation stuff that we're seeing over in Wolverine. But who knows? I guess time will tell. Um, Now, the flashback here, I feel like they they missed out on something they could have done. And, of course, this is me wildly, you know, uh, armchair quarterbacking here. But why not not have a sixth kid? You know, why not have a sixth kid on board for uh, for the flashback who didn't make it, or who was just lost and maybe will come back later or something. Just give us a reason, give us something different, right? Give us a reason to want to go back to this flashback and think about it rather than like, oh, these random kids somehow commandeered a spaceship, took off into space, and then crashed down and survived? I don't know, like, is this going to be like a Challenges of the Unknown sort of thing where... You know, they, they beat death, and now they're going to just continually challenge the unknown? I really don't know. And now that we're, what, like 13 14 15 bucks into this series, we're going to need uh, more of a reason to, to care about this, to invest our, our time and energy into caring about these characters. Uh, let's hop over to Cole and the whole um, 
what was it called? The Real Unity Project here. Nothing we haven't seen before, right? I mean, this is something that's come up in X-Men comics for a very long time now, where we use mutant DNA or mutant tissues to, to you know, to give people powers, right? To give people a leg up. Um, was it Sublime or, like, the U-Men or... Whoever it was, I think, around the time of the Morrison run was, uh, was injecting themselves with mutant abilities or something. This is nothing new under the sun here. Though in fairness, it does give us something a little bit different as for what I was expecting from Cole. I, I figured Cole was just going to be revealed as being a mutant and then be viewed as an idol to our uh, Coda kids. And here we find out that, uh, well, maybe that's not the case, right? Maybe it's just... That he had this tissue, uh, you know, put into his body And now he's sort of this half-human, half-mutant sort of thing Who can exhibit these, uh, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, superpowers, right? He's really, really good on the basketball court As we saw back in the first issue And uh, here, you know, he's, uh, he's healthy He came back from the, the brink of death Due to this uh, Real Unity project So um, I guess that's something a little bit different from what I was expecting Which is cool now, Buddy's reaction to hearing this, uh, rather than just like sitting there and nodding and being like, "Oh, it's a you know, it's a miracle that you came back to life here," she instead suggests that they use him to uh, to bust through the Krakoan gateways. And I mean, that just speaks to uh, Buddy's uh, obsession with mutants and uh, lack of tact, I suppose. Uh, this is very odd. She probably should have discussed this with her teammates before being like, hey, hey, Cole and his dads and this weird ape man, uh, how about we use you to cross into Krakoa? Seems like a misreading of the room at the uh, very least. But I guess that's uh, kind of the character they're going with with Buddy here. I mean, it's fairly clear from everything we've seen, every scene that we've witnessed where uh, Carmen and Buddy are you know, close. It's very apparent that uh, Carmen has feelings for Buddy, of course. Uh, we saw that in the uh, gym back in the first issue. Uh, we're seeing it now. Uh, and we've got Buddy, who maybe is just kind of out to lunch. Maybe she enjoys the attention. We really don't know. But she's all hugging up on Carmen. Uh, she considers her best friend and doesn't realize there's a whole lot more to it. Uh, she even goes back, you know, we go back to that first issue where... She has feelings for uh, Gabe. Um, Buddy has feelings for Gabe, but she won't pursue them because she thinks that Carmen and Gabe have something going together here. So we have ourselves in uh, you know a bizarre love triangle, which at the rate we're going will probably play itself out in issue uh, 98 of this book with how slow it's going. But uh, don't have a whole lot more to say about this. Uh, was uh, not much happened, which. I mean, if you're trying to establish a new thing here with the Children of the Atom, we need to move a little bit faster than this. We need to pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, that's just me as a, as a you know, single-issue reader. You know, of course, Marvel and the comics industry in general really don't you know, give a rat's ass about the, the weekly and monthly reader. This is all about the trade. So maybe when this is collected in a five- or six-issue trade, it'll, it'll read very, very well. That unfortunately just does a disservice to those of us who are uh, who are putting down the money to facilitate those collections. It's, I guess, it's just the way comics are these days. Uh, the art was okay. The art was okay. It's worth saying, but I uh, really don't have a whole heck of a lot more to say about it. Uh, if you agree or disagree, I would love to hear from you. Uh, speaking of which, 
Let's hop into the mailbag here. We, we got a couple of letters. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Marvel's Voices number 1. He says, I love the idea of this series of specials. It's great that many Marvel creators have expanded the profile of heroes, but this is often done by straight, white, cisgendered men, and for true diversity, we need to expand the pool of creators. The possible downside is that it's very hard to write a great short story, and therefore it's difficult for writers to turn their presence in these books into regular work. Marvel could use this project solely as a mask of progression whilst continuing to rotate their top books between the same small group of men. And yeah... Um, I think you are right on the money here. Um, this seems, and, and I mean, the first time we covered this was this book here, Marvel's Voices Number 1. That was the first one of these um, initiative uh, anthologies that we've covered. Since then, we've looked at the indigenous voices, we've looked at legacy, and we've looked at uh, w- Women of Marvel, which isn't the same thing, but it is an anthology dedicated to diversifying or showing the diversification of the talent pool. And when we started with this one, I was very, very happy to see it. It felt like a uh, like a true celebration, this very first issue, where it's like, okay, we're going to give people an opportunity here. We're going to try to grow every aspect of uh, the comics industry. We're going to try to grow the talent pool. We're going to try to grow the roster of characters. We're going to try to grow the readership. I didn't see anything negative about this, which... Might just be me not seeing the forest for the trees. I did receive uh, an email from the other Chris a few weeks ago where uh, it was a very challenging email where he kind of called me out on being a little too a little too kid gloves on this. And he considered it uh, a patronizing sort of outing, which he's not completely without point, right? Um, as you state here, Damien, Marvel could use this project solely as a mask of progression. And um, I I think when we covered the Women of Marvel thing, I I think I alluded to something like that, you know? Like, this is more about virtue signaling than actually providing an an opportunity for some talented uh, female creators. This was just a... This was just like an attempt at getting like a little blurb on like the uh, Entertainment Weekly website. It's like, hey, look what Marvel's doing, rather than... Hey, we got some really talented writers here. How about you check this stuff out? It was more about the headline rather than the actual um, material within. And as we go through these voices, one-shots, it, it feels more and more like it's becoming about the sizzle and not the steak, for lack of a better term here. It's all about, the hey, we can do a full-page ad in our Marvel previews, that says, hey, look at us, look at what we're doing here, rather than actually giving these talented creators an opportunity to really show their stuff and flex their creative muscle in these books here. I mean, in the Women of Marvel thing, we were getting one-pagers, one-page gag strips, where uh, Medusa's getting her hair done, and Lady Deathstrike's getting her nails done. It just feels like a real disservice. And, uh, an indictment of the, as you put it here, a possible downside to this whole initiative is it's hard to write a short story, especially with a new creator, right? A new creator who might not have all their kinks taken out in writing a regular length story might be even more encumbered by having to fit their their story into a single page, two pages, four pages, uh, you know, if they're lucky enough to get six pages in one of these specials. It's still a challenge, right? And it also is a place where they can just put these creators, Marvel, that is. They can put these creators there, say they're giving opportunity, 
but not really sticking the landing. Now that takes me to the next thing you wrote here, which I don't know a whole lot about this guy, so I don't know if this is sarcastic or not, but uh, Damien says, On a completely unrelated note, I write this comment the day after Marvel announced that Donnie Cates is replacing Al Ewing on the Hulk, which shows their commitment to diverse hiring. I think you're being sarcastic, but I'm not sure, because I don't know much about Donny Cates other than the fact that he's, like, responsible for, like, a third of Marvel's output. So I'm guessing you're using that as an indictment of Marvel rotating their top books, uh, you know, between the same group of folks there. So that's interesting to know. I, I didn't hear that news just yet. I'm, I stopped following the Hulk a little while ago, so uh, I really couldn't say what was going on with them. But... If you were being sarcastic there, then your your point is well taken, because this is just giving someone who gets plenty of high-profile work at Marvel getting even more. Damien continues, On to the actual comics. I mainly enjoyed the Forge and Shuri story and the Wolverine one drawn by Sanford Green. It makes me feel hopeful for Children of the Atom and makes me want to pick up Bitter Root, which is the same creative team as the Madripoor story. I've always loved Sanford Green's art. I was the person who bought that Wonder Girl mini that he drew, and he's getting better. Yeah, the ones that we read here, I thought they were uh, they were mostly harmless, but there was some uh, some good stuff there, right? We did see the first appearance of the characters we talked about today, the Children of the Atom, getting Forge's autograph at the end of that one. That's the entire reason why I ran out and bought the damn thing. But the stories that we read, we were, you know, a Just the X-Men sort of a show. They were okay. None of them were offensive. They were They were good. They were good. Damien continues, My personal favorite was the Luciano Vecchio Pride March story, which you didn't cover. I suppose the X characters were in the background. That I didn't notice. If I knew they were in the background, I probably would have covered it just as a a completionist. But uh, I haven't read that one. I really, I haven't read anything that hasn't been X-Men in any of these anthologies. Maybe I should. I don't know, because, I mean, the X-Men have never been, for the longest time, they haven't been, like, a priority at Marvel, so maybe... Maybe the better stories are the non-X-Men stories. Don't know. Damien wraps up with a good initiative, but hopefully not the limit of Marvel's commitment to to diversity. Easy for me to say. I agree. I agree 100%. I fear that, uh, I mean, after seeing the follow-ups to this Marvel Voices uh, issue here with uh, Indigenous Voices, Legacy, and, uh, I mean, to an extent, Women of Marvel, I really don't know. I really don't know. They they fall into that X-Men Unlimited territory of just being stories that don't matter. It might not be the best forum for uh, some of these writers trying to get noticed, some of these creators trying to get noticed, but uh, I suppose it's uh, it's a step in the right direction, right? It is a, uh, it's better than it was. So there's that. But uh, thank you so much for writing in about the Marvel's Voices. I've been very much looking forward to your thoughts on it, and uh, I am also looking forward to your thoughts on the subsequent issues. So thank you so much. Next up, we got Evan talking about X-Men number 18. He says, Not much to say about the issue, except I'm glad to see Sink back. As for the pacing of the stories and reveals, it feels like Hickman has a big structure that other writers are filling in with varying degrees of quality and success. We got Hoxpox, then the Festival of Swords, then the Hellfire Gala, then Inferno, and there are the other books as well. That's probably an oversimplification, but it doesn't feel like he's very involved with the other books. Come for the Hickman, stay for the Duggan, Wells, Williams, and company. And yeah, that's something that I believe, uh, I don't know if this wound up in the episode or if it was on the cutting room floor, but uh, 
I talked about that with uh, Ed Moore during the 200th episode where we were trying to figure out if Hickman was all that involved here and it seemed like his involvement is is getting lesser and lesser as we move forward here where he's just sticking to that one story he wants to tell and then the other writers kind of have to they got they have to kind of world build right he's got his ideas i mean that's the hickman that's the hickman strength right it's these big ideas that are that are interesting right they're interesting but they're not chock full of characterization Right? They're not chock full of follow-through. Uh, they're kind of they're not quite a square peg going into a round hole. They're more of like an octagon-shaped peg going into a round hole. So like it kind of fits, but it also kind of doesn't. It needs a little bit of sanding and massaging to make it work. Uh, and the other writers here are doing they're doing all the heavy lifting. And that's a true testament to them since another thing that I've brought up as we've gone through these things is like, how come so many of these stories take place in Madripoor and Otherworld? And uh, one of the things I thought about was, well, maybe those are places Hickman says, hey, have fun there. You know, maybe those places don't really affect or contradict the stories he wants to tell. You know, that's why we have Wolverine fighting vampires, right? It has nothing to do with post-humanity, with the Hoxpox premise. It's just a story being told that's kind of inoffensive. It's kind of off the beaten path. It feels like it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but maybe that's kind of the point, right? Now, Evan continues. As for my stab at some sinister secrets, which was something that I uh, covered uh, again in the uh, X-Men 18 episode here, is just a, uh, a way to go back to the beginning and see if any of these sinister secrets that were posited in the early books had been addressed or ignored or contradicted here. Evan says, when you reread number nine, which reads... They say the kids are all right, but all is not right in paradise. This non-couple couple has been apart too long. Friends are expecting that when they see each other again, fireworks are going to ensue. Is the universe ready? Judging by how unprepared everyone was, was for what's happened so far, we kind of doubt it. Evan says, I first thought the reference to the kids meant the issues a new mutants are dealing with now, but the non-couple couple could be mistaken destiny, since they weren't officially acknowledged as a couple until more recently. The fireworks could mean burning Krakoa to the ground, and looking back at that issue, there was a sinister secret revealed that referenced Inferno. That's possible. That is certainly possible here. As you said here, the sinister secret revealed right under sinister secret number nine says, We don't hear this word spoken often, so when we do, it's best to pay attention, because when you square that circle, what took a long time to build can come crumbling down rather quickly, and then the word Inferno appears in brackets. So... Definitely could be. I, I don't remember who wrote in to suggest that number nine was a reference to a relationship between Jubilee and Chamber, which uh, we actually just talked about over on uh, Generation X Lapsed. They had a uh, they had a relationship, which I don't know has ever been uh, referenced again since uh, that book went away. Uh, you got fireworks. I I guess it stands to reason that it could be Jubilee, but uh, who knows? Uh, Evan continues. As for Sinister's possible knowledge of the future, what if Sinister Secret Eleven suggests not precognition, but time travel, a Sinister from the future operating among the clones since he was first contacted by Xavier and Magneto? And boy, doesn't that just open up a whole can of worms here, right? Um, I think we've been focusing so much on, on, you know, the precogs here, the destinies who can't be brought back that... I mean, we uh, we haven't really paid much uh, attention to the fact that 
I mean, this is the Marvel Universe. Time travel happens with regularity. So, I mean, there stands to reason here that uh, there are characters who can go to the future and find out what happened, or go to the past and find out what happened here. I really don't know how you tell such a story, because it kind of unravels everything, not just about uh, the X-Men, but about basically the entire Marvel Universe, right? I mean, what's to stop... Mystique from going back in time and, and killing Moro. It's to stop any of these characters from going anywhere and doing anything. You know, this is the, uh, you know, the Back to the Future, uh, you know, sports almanac, right? This is knowledge of the future, which can very much change the past. It's it's interesting. And, and you know, I don't know what the current um, rules of time travel are in the Marvel Universe. Like, if you go back in time and change something, is that a splinter effect? Like, do we break the timeline off and go a different direction, or does it overwrite the current timeline? I think it's gone both ways, and I, I think... Oh boy, who was it? Was it Mark Grunewald who had the rules about time travel? I think since uh, since Grunewald's passing, they really haven't um, paid much mind to uh, the rules of uh, time travel. So, your guess is as good as mine, but that is a great theory that... Yeah, maybe uh, maybe a sinister knows not through pre- precognition, but through uh, just knowing because he saw it. That's definitely a heavy, heavy theory, and I'd love to hear from uh, other folks on what their thoughts are on such a uh, potentially, you know, uh, world-breaking <laughs> theory that uh, we're uh, floating here. But I want to thank you so much for writing in, Evan. It really, really means a lot, and uh, that. We'll do it for the mailbag. Uh, if you would like to write in and chat me up about anything your heart desires, I would love for you to do so. I'm begging you to do so. You can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline thing at 623-396-JERK. You can head to chrisoninfiniteearth.com for blog posts and show notes. You can chat us up on Facebook, where I'm currently complaining about X-Corp. So if you'd like to join in on that conversation, please, we invite you. We would love to see you there, and uh, we would love to hear from you, whether you agree, disagree, or uh, are indifferent altogether. I would love to hear from you all the same. That is 90s X-Men on Facebook. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on every noise aggregation, blah, 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 that the internet has. And if you like what you hear there, or uh, at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two. It would really mean the world to me and uh, the show. So uh, I thank you all in advance for that. And I also thank you for allowing me to be part of your day-to-day. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.